This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Last night, if you were listening last night, was it last night? I think, it was, yeah, last night we were chatting about, or maybe it was the night before. I lose track. Anyway, we were chatting about the fact that Supercrawl, which is one of the real Hamilton things, which just announced their lineup today, by the way. But what we were chatting about was the fact that Supercrawl, in a move that I certainly didn't agree with, I thought it was a mistake, love Supercrawl, think it's a fantastic thing for this city, think this particular thing was a mistake, they decided to announce their lineup this year for the really Hamilton-esque event in downtown Toronto. Because you've heard that this week, I'm sure you've heard this, that this week Hamilton and Hamilton Tourism have set up an embassy, they're calling it, a consulate on Queen Street. Queen Street West in Toronto. Queen, yeah, Queen Street West in Toronto. Now, you know what? That's the first time ever that I've actually got my East and West botched up for Toronto because I grew up in Toronto and Hamilton's usually the place that gets you all mixed up with the North and South because of the lake. But anyway, Queen Street West, they've got this console set up and it's basically a sales pitch for Torontonians to come to Hamilton. And I thought it was a mistake to announce the lineup for Supercrawl there. I think it kind of, it, it's one of those things that's so much a part of Hamilton that it should have been done here, regardless. The idea behind this consulate or this, this sales pitch that they're doing is the more this week has been going on, the more I've been thinking about this and reading some other people's opinions and hearing some other people talk about it and, and hearing back and forth, I get the idea in a sense, to a degree, I get the idea why we are reaching out and trying to sell our city as a destination. I do. Of course you do that. That's, that's, what, that's what every city does. What, what do you think tourism is? If you've ever watched a commercial for Disney World or Orlando or California, you know, those, we have those commercials with the people down in California, all the stars talking about how great it is out there, or the Tim Allen voiced commercials for Michigan, right? We, we, places try to sell themselves to get people to come here. Here's the part, though, that as the week has gone on, that I've become a little confused about, I guess. We have set up, or Hamilton has set up this thing at Queen Street West. Now, Queen Street West, for anyone who knows downtown Toronto, at one time was the hub of the arts community. It was kind of avant-garde. It was kind of out there a little bit. Queen Street West is where, if you remember way back in the day, when Moses Snymer got the city TV thing, which was city TV was very different, very groundbreaking when it first started. Remember, no anchor desks and all this guy. He did it on Queen Street West. It was the heart of the cultural, in a lot of ways, community in Toronto, the sort of out there cultural community. But Queen Street West, as a, over time, has really grown to the point where a lot of the people who were there, the, I don't want to call it low rent. That's not what I mean. I don't mean the people who necessarily weren't rich. Let's just put it that way. The artists and the other people. As that has become a more and more popular place, they've been basically pushed out of there because they can't afford it anymore. Leave that thought for just one second. Let's jump back to Hamilton. We have heard, you have heard, I'm sure you've heard in recent years about all the 
gentrification, the building up, the improvements that we keep hearing about in the downtown. But the thing that's interesting about this is for all the times that we're hearing about how this is great, that James Street North is being fixed up and other places are being fixed up and there's improvements. And we also hear from a lot of people concerns that so many people are coming from Toronto now because for the real estate prices that are better here in Hamilton, for other reasons, that people can't, people who lived here, who are from here, people who are maybe not making a fortune for a living, suddenly, because prices are going up so much, they can't afford it anymore. We've drawn so many people from Toronto and from other places that housing prices, building prices in downtown Hamilton are no longer cheap. To the contrary, they're very expensive. And further, there is a lot of concern from some people that the arts community here, which, as you, I'm sure, have noticed, really blossomed over the last decade or so, is now at risk of kind of being run out of the area because costs are going up so much. So this is where I get a little bit confused because we... We're, we say, or a lot of people in that area say how concerned we are that too many Torontonians, too many people are moving here and driving up prices. So when we go to set up this consulate, where do we set it up? Right at Queen Street. Apparently, I guess, going after the very people who would then come to our area and drive up the prices more. Let me read you something. And I thought this was a really insightful piece. It was from The Inlet, which is an online Hamilton Magazine. It's under the, it's by uh, Biljana Nijigavan, who I hope I pronounced her last name right. Um, under the headline, You're Nobody Until Toronto Loves You. It's really well done. And here is, pretty clearly explained, it's going to take me a few seconds to read this paragraph, what I'm talking about. She writes this, The Hamilton Consulate event is happening on Queen Rest, an area of Toronto that was once known for its grit and grassroots culture. The area is often mentioned when discussing the feel of Hamilton's James Street North. There's no shortage of articles about the fallout of gentrification and overdevelopment happening on Queen West and the death of the small independent businesses and artsy scene that once existed there. Toronto mourns it, just like they mourn the closing of the great Toronto institution Honest Ed. Honest Ed's. And just like music fans mourn the closing of the 10-plus small music venues in the past year, Toronto knows it is in the grips of gentrification, and the city has even officially addressed the music venue closures. They have been discussing gentrification for years. And here we are, setting up shop in the overpriced ruins of their former art hub, as if asking them to bring us their mess. And this is, this is what I was thinking, and then I read this, and I thought, you know what? Kudos, because this is better said than I'm saying it. If we as if Hamilton is going to go to Toronto and is going to try to sell itself in Toronto, is this the place where we should be going to sell ourselves? Right? If we want business to come here, if the idea is we want companies to come here, should we not be going to Bay Street or to corporate offices or something? Should we not be finding going to the people where they are who you say, hey, listen, why don't you come and move to Hamilton and bring your company and we can do something for you here. And if we're wanting suburbanites or people to come from, you know, not necessarily all to settle in the downtown, we just want people to come and move here who, well, should we only be going to Queen Street West? Should we be looking to maybe some of the suburbs of Toronto? 
You know, because what was interesting was there was a big foo yesterday because at this consulate, quote, quote, a developer who has done work in Hamilton in a magazine was quoted as saying that Hamilton is essentially becoming a bedroom community of Toronto. And of course, everyone here goes, oh, you can't say that about Hamilton. We're not, we're nobody's bedroom community. Well, are we not? I mean, I'm not, I'm not arguing that we should be, but let's be realistic. The cost of homes in Hamilton, why do you think they've gone up so much? In a lot of ways, it's because people from Toronto and the Toronto area have come here. And do you think they've all moved here and are working here? No. If they were all living here and working here, why are we spending all this money building ghost stations that'll take us to Toronto? People are coming here, living here, and working in Toronto. We're building infrastructure on James Street North, the James Street Go Station. The whole idea of the West Harbor Stadium was supposed to be because it's on the Go Link and it's all connected. Everything's connected because we're sending everybody to Toronto. And now, apparently what we're asking is more people to come here and be bedroom community people. So I just don't know that there's a clear message right now. I love the idea of us telling Toronto we're great. I just don't know that we need to be doing that. I mean, I don't mind. When I say I love the idea, I love the idea of us having a city that we can be proud of, which I think we can. But I think we've got a really mixed message going on here. One, what exactly do we want in this city? Do we want our arts downtown James Street North area overwhelmed with people so that it becomes so high priced that everyone and all the charm that is there now is run out because they can't afford it. That's my first question. Second question, why are we not going more after big businesses? Although, you know, I'm sure that that's going on simultaneously. But third, if those are not, if neither of those are really the issue, if this is just about exposing Hamilton to Toronto, is this not in some way doing exactly the thing that kind of makes us look like we lack any kind of self-confidence, that this article that I just read t- to you from says, you're nobody until Toronto loves you, that we are seemingly desperately trying to get Toronto to say, oh, wow, Hamilton's cool. See, that that to me, while a lot of the other stuff you, you can say is fine, I, I get very uncomfortable when we have to, when we have this feeling that we have to have Torontonians like us and respect us and think we're a big deal. Who cares if they do? Who cares? Honestly, who cares if someone from Toronto never visits Hamilton? I don't care. I'm quite fine living with Hamiltonians in Hamilton. And if you want to come and visit, I'm not saying lock the doors, but I'm saying if you want to come and visit, knock yourself out. If you if we do some ads for stuff, great. If we attract tourists, fine. I just don't think we need to be desperate sounding to have people from the big city like us. It's like Sally Field at the Academy Awards. You like me. You really like me. Who cares if Toronto likes us? Honestly, who cares? I think we're we're a bigger city, we're a bigger people. We should have more self-esteem and more confidence than to worry what Toronto thinks about us. Our, I don't think we need to establish our cool bona fides in order to be able to live with ourselves. I mean, what happens now if someone who attended the consulate goes, 
you know what? Hamilton stinks. I found nothing enticing about Hamilton at that meeting. Do, is that going to drive us nuts? Is that Some people it will. It'll drive them bonkers that we did not win over everyone in Toronto. I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with us being Hamilton. And if you want to come and you want to be part of it, great. But I think we're in some cases, in some ways, this little thing, I, the more I've thought about it over the last few days, the more I've thought we're trying a little too hard. We're trying a little too hard. And the end result of this might not exactly be what we want. If all of a sudden, all kinds of Torontonians, who we've managed to win over, suddenly say, you know what? Hmm, James Street North. Yeah, I'm going to go and take sell my house or my whatever I have here and move there because I can get a lot more for less. All we're going to have is prices go up and up and up. And I keep hearing that we don't want that in Hamilton. We don't want the prices to keep going up and up and up of homes. And yet we're going, we're apparently trying to attract more people from Toronto to come here, which will drive the prices up and up and up. We, it's, it's mixed messages is what I'm saying. I'm not sure I understand completely. Maybe I'm not supposed to. Maybe I'm not the person they are going after and I'm not supposed to understand. I'm supposed to live in a fog, not understanding what's happening, but I don't, so they win. They got me. But I'm 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 a little confused by what the actual message is that we're sending out. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. Let me bring Rick Zamper in here. Uh, CHML well, you just finished about a 17-hour shift here on CHML, got home, had dinner, and he's back on the air. Rick, thanks for doing this. Did I get Rick? There we go. Rick, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh. How are you? You know what? I just The phone in here, I pressed the button to put you on, and it's stuck, and I don't know whatever happened. So <laughs> the machinery is all breaking down. Anyway, you can look after that tomorrow morning. Sounds good. Um, got a few things I want to go through with you from the world of sports here really quickly because some stuff has happened uh, today that I find really interesting. And number one on the list, and I'm sure by now most of the people listening have seen the dash cam video of Tiger Woods. A little bit of it came out yesterday, a lot more. In fact, I think the whole thing is now out today. And I have, I, I, I will tell you right up front, I have no in, no tolerance, no sympathy, no nothing for people who drive drunk. I just, I just don't. It's, it's just way too dangerous and way too stupid. Mm-hmm. This story, we now know that he wasn't driving drunk. It was prescription pills. And I got to tell you, I watched a bunch of the dash cam today, and I know you did as well. I found myself really surprisingly feeling sorry for the guy rather than angry. Yeah, I, I you know what, I had the same feeling too, and you know, he he just looks tired, and, you know, for, for most of the video, you know, his eyes are closed, he's very, you know, he has some slurred speech, very slow and lethargic, you know, had his foot on the hood of the police cruiser for a while, he's trying to tie his shoe, and, you know, I found myself just feeling that, you know, this is very sad to watch, and it's almost like, you know, that, that kind of rubbernecker on the highway looking at a car crash type thing, the more you watch, you know, the sadder you kind of got, or at least that I got. But the more you wanted to see, or at least there was a little part of me to say, you know, what's going to happen next? You know, how is he going to you know, respond to this question? And, you know, at the end of the video, you just have that sense of, oh, my gosh, like this is really, you know, rock bottom for him. And that's what feel sorry for him. That's what I felt. See, the thing is, I, again, you've got a guy who got into the this driver's seat of his SUV. Uh, we know that even when he's sober, if his wife is chasing him, he's not a good driver. He hit a, a fire hydrant that first time. But <laughs> right. not to make light of it, but this is a guy who 
legitimately could have killed someone when you look at the state that he was in when he was behind the wheel of the car. So that part of me says I shouldn't feel badly for this guy. And I'm trying to convince myself not to feel badly because he made a terrible choice. I can't believe that even in the state he was in, there's not a part of him that goes, I probably shouldn't be driving. Yeah, and, and you know what? That's what one of the officers had told him, you know, at one point in the video, uh, basically saying, you know, I, I don't think you should be driving anymore and uh, or any longer, you know, at least at, at this part of the night. I think they picked him up at 3 a.m. Mm. or found him, uh, you know, asleep at the wheel in his SUV. And, you know, I was wondering at one point in the in the video and after learning that, you know, it was three in the morning, he was asleep. Uh, whether he even whether he even realized that he climbed into his vehicle, turned it on and drove down the street, uh, you know, that that kind of thought crossed my mind too the other thought was you know why is this kind of, why is this video even being released why are we uh you know why is tiger woods being subjected to this kind of you know embarrassment really at the end of the day because it is an embarrassing video uh, of him you know being uh, influenced as he said by uh, you know by prescription medications and if you're the police department is there an underlying kind of uh you know purpose to release this video maybe obviously showing the dangers of Mixing drugs or taking prescription medications and 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 getting behind the wheel that might be to it, but uh, you know otherwise, uh, you know I just as I said I just feel really bad for him. Well, Florida's freedom of information laws allow the release of all these things, and so generally what's happened now is that Florida police, knowing they're going to be required to release them anyway, they just now if they're asked they just give them out because it's just right. a matter of time. So it's not just him. We've seen a lot of other people, non celebrities. Yeah. But again, I. I I I felt the exact same way that you did about the fact that, you know, this just seems like there was a point and he's standing there and he looks completely confused and he looks, the first thing is, the one thing about Tiger Woods and all other massive world celebrities is you always have this feeling that they are bigger than life, right? Right. There's always just this sense because TV doesn't give you real context and so he's now standing next to two cops and he looks very much like a normal guy. The only difference is that he's got a billion dollars in his bank account and he's got anything he wants. And again, I felt exactly like you did, that this just seems like how, what else could happen to ruin this guy? And and not, it's his decisions, right? I mean, it's not, we're not casting the blame on someone else. He's not a victim here, but it just seems what else could happen in this guy's decision-making and whatever else that could make things rougher for him. He's still got all the money, but he doesn't have, I don't think, the respect or the admiration or certainly the majors, but the, the the love that you would expect a guy like him to have at this point. Yeah, you know what, there's there's no doubt that he's still, I think, amongst the, uh, you know, golf, um, golf brethren of, of the PGA Tour. I think they all came out and said, uh, you know, the right things that, you know, without Tiger, you know, the PGA Tour wouldn't be, you know, what it is today, which is, I think, a 100% accurate yep. statement. But I think, you know, they they have seen him uh, certainly on the high notes, but they've seen him hit a couple of massive lows, you know, uh, getting a divorce from his wife, uh, the whole, uh, you know, sex addiction, uh, you know, therapy or rehab that he had to go through. Uh, You know, this obviously is another, uh, you know, part of it, uh, the the injury woes, you know, the four or five or however many now back surgeries that he's had to undergo uh, that has really, you know, uh, crippled and, and, and altered his career trajectory. Um, I think if you're a pro golfer, you realize the importance of Tiger Woods. And I think, as I said, they said all the right things. But this is almost a, you know, a tar and feathering. You know, here's Tiger Woods, this once mighty Herculean figure in the, in the sports landscape. And now he is really, 
really dropped to uh, you know mortal status, if you will, and it's just uh, it's just odd to see. Let me ask you one weird question though about this. Mm-hmm. You've watched it. I've watched it again. I assume a lot of people have watched it or after we're chatting about it, will go and look it up. It's everywhere on the internet. You can find it. It doesn't take any real work to find it. Is there any chance that despite everything, that this could actually somehow work to his advantage by engendering sympathy? Because as I say, I felt it. You felt any chance that at the end of the day, this video coming out weirdly works to his favor in some way? That you know, you got to feel a little sad for the guy rather than dumping on him. Here's a here's a troubled guy. You know what? I think the the um, the initial reaction to the story was, uh, oh, oh geez, he's hit the, you know another low point uh, in his career, and obviously that, that I think that's still an accurate statement. But you know, after you watch the video and after you realize, or at least uh, accept his explanation that it is prescription medications and not alcohol and not illegal drugs that you do have that sort of, um, you know, obviously he made a mistake by, you know, getting behind the wheel when he was, you know, under this concoction of uh, prescribed medications. But at the same time, I- I'm not sure how many people would watch that video and say, you know, Tiger, you deserve it. Um, you know, given what he's already been through and given the accolades he's accomplished and, uh, you know, the status that he has, I think you can't, you you have to feel remorse. I mean, that's the only feeling that, that I would, that I would, that I got. I, I really can't think of an individual, um, kind of laughing at the video and saying, oh, Tiger, you know, you, you got what you deserved. I'd, I'd be disturbed if I had that kind of feeling. Yeah, this to me, and obviously it's a very different scenario, I understand that, but when I watched back in, what was it, 1994, was it, when O.J. Simpson was driving down the highway and people are cheering, I was disgusted by those people and I was disgusted by O.J. Simpson when you heard what happened yeah. and felt no, even though he's in the back of the seat of the car with a gun to his head threatening suicide, I, I didn't feel sympathy for him. I say, I oddly, I, I was really caught off guard when I watched this and I felt real sympathy for the guy, but, and, and I, and apparently I'm not alone. So there you go. Um, all right. Switch topic to something a little possibly more pleasant. Uh, NBA finals begin tonight. Now, I don't know how many people around here watch the NBA, not like hockey, but are you absolutely intrigued by the fact that the Golden State Warriors, which are essentially an all-star team all by themselves, and the Cleveland Cavaliers with LeBron James are going to face each other now for the third straight year in the finals? Or do you look at this and say, there's only two teams in the NBA that can win the finals now. I'm bored out of my mind with these two. Well, you know what? I am I am intrigued by this final. And, um, you know, when I look across uh, the NBA, you know, are, is there another team I would put in there? Apart from being, you know, a Raptors fan, yeah, I'd, like, I'd love to see them in the final. But from a pure competitive standpoint, from a, a pure, uh, you know, us versus them, uh, you know, a, a collision of the two NBA Titans, and there's no other teams than Golden State and Cleveland, uh, the two teams that have won the last two NBA championships. I see this as a drag them out, knock them out kind of grudge match. Not only that, but now you have the Kevin Durant factor, who hasn't been a part of the last two NBA finals because he was with uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder. I think uh, the whole debate, uh, which will continue beyond this this final series, but the whole debate surrounding LeBron James and whether he is the greatest, whether he is better than Michael Jordan, I think will uh, will certainly be an undertone throughout this NBA finals. Uh, Golden State's such a fun team to watch, and if they um, if they hit their shots, man, they can just blow you out of the water. But Cleveland, 
plays great defense. They have probably the best player on the planet in LeBron. I'm very much looking forward to this this third round of Warriors versus Cavs. And you can argue, and I think you just did, that you know this to have two superpowers. This would be like having Ali Frazier or Ali Foreman or you know whatever. Go back and it, the fact that two people, or in this case, two teams, are so far ahead of the rest of the pack. All right, well, let's just make them play each other, and that's fine. Now, the the flip side of this, though, Rick, is that means there are all well all the other teams in the NBA who I don't think, honestly, I thought San Antonio maybe could have given them a run, but then we saw them blow a 24-point lead or something. Is it good for the NBA that no other team is even remotely capable of dreaming of being in this position? Because there's not another team that could beat either of these two. Yeah, you know what, San Antonio would probably be the closest, but, you know, the whole Kawhi Leonard injury kind of upset the apple cart there, and they just imploded, basically. But, you know, I think as sports fans, we want to see best on best. So whether it's Real Madrid versus Juventus in the Champions League coming up, or it's Cavaliers-Warriors, or, you know, at least at this point in the the hockey season, it's Penguins-Predators, whether they're the two best NHL teams, uh, I guess, is... uh, is uh, is up for debate but i think as sports fans we want to see the best compete against the best and i think at the nba more often than not we usually see that whether it's you know bulls and pistons back in the day or, or lakers celtics i mean those kinds of nba finals or playoff series uh are the most memorable because they had the best team versus the best team so that, that, that's, that, I, that's why i think most people most fans are looking at this final saying yeah this is this is one i want to watch again and i agree with that part of it i'm saying though is it good for the league that oh. that see back in the 80s for those who remember that far back you had the lakers and the celtics who were often one of those two teams i think was in the finals every one of the years of the 80s but there was also the 76ers who were really good with moses malone and dr j and there were the detroit pistons the bad boys from detroit with isaiah thomas and bill lane beer and those guys and chicago was coming along so while you had some powerhouse teams there were at least a handful of others that depending on the year could be in that mix and i'm wondering if it's good for the league that these two are the only two that could possibly win the championship year after year. Well, yeah, one of, one of the difficulties the league has, in, and I'm not sure how they can coordinate or stop this, is teams uh, compiling a list of superstars. You know, you go through these two teams, and they have, uh, you know, three, four, five guys deep that would be probably the superstar on any particular team in the league. So when you have three or four of them, Obviously, they're always going to end up in the NBA final, which is the case now for three straight years. But from a league standpoint, yeah, if you're a fan in Orlando or in Portland or in Minnesota or even Toronto, uh, it's that here we go again factor. So do you lose that, uh, you know, those fans in, in those cities? I think they'll watch for the most part. They may not be as excited, obviously, if their team was in there. But I think the league does have to be a little careful in, in having the same two teams over and over and over again. I think three straight years is, is probably the max. If we were to go a fourth year of Warriors-Cavaliers, even though I'd love to watch it, uh, I think fans around the league would kind of look at each other and say, hey, you know, things got to change here. We've we got to see some new teams in the mix. Well, you ask how the, what the league could do about it. I still think that I don't quite understand why the NBA has a salary cap that isn't a salary cap. Yeah, because you can. <laughs> well, it's a salary cap with a tax on top, basically. Yeah, but it, the, the idea of a cap, the idea of a salary cap in the first place is supposed. I know it's so the owners can save money theoretically, but it's also supposed to create competitive balance because mm-hmm. you can't have the New York Yankees and Los Angeles Dodgers versus Kansas City and whoever else. 
the, the reality is when you can just sign as many guys as you want, like the Warriors have, if you put a hard cap in place and say, no, you have to, like in, like in hockey now, you have to be under the cap, you could, you could control some of this stuff. Because if you want to sign LeBron James to $35 million a year and your cap is $90 million, well, you got LeBron James, but then figure out what's going to be around him. It's going to be you and me and Will. <laughs> and they probably still win. <laughs> could be. Yeah. No, but I, I completely understand. And in the NBA, they, they do have a cap, but you can go over the cap and pay you know, a percentage called luxury tax and yada, yada, yada. And both teams are probably in that mix. Um, and, and until they change that, I, yeah, I don't think this uh, scenario of Warriors versus Cavs is going to go away unless, you know, in a, in a playoff atmosphere, especially in a, in a seven-game series, uh, especially if you have an injury, if LeBron James goes down or Kyrie Irving suffers an injury or, or Kevin Love, you know, one of the top three guys in the Cavs or name any of the superstars in the Warriors, if they go down, just like Kawhi Leonard with San Antonio, I mean, things can, can unravel a little bit. Uh, for those two teams, though, if they lost, you know, one of their big guns, uh, LeBron or Steph, they stu- still have, you know, exceptional players behind them that can d- get the job done. But, I mean, apart from that, I'm not sure what the league can do other than say, hey, uh, you know, no more luxury tax. This is our hard cap and, and away we go. Next year, what the Raptors have to do is actually stay, you call up Glenn Grunwald, who used to be their GM, and say the games are in Hamilton at First Ontario Center, but not tell the Cavaliers. So they show up in Toronto, and then the game is forfeited, and then just keep moving it around every night so the Cavaliers never know and win four forfeits, and then you're good to go. That's that's the as, secret. As, as long as they get home court advantage. That's true, yeah. They, they'd lose in seven. Well, you got to win one on the road. But um, <laughs> uh, we got a couple of minutes left, and earlier today, at down speaking of First Ontario Centre, down at First Ontario Centre, there was a press conference on the very spot where... Wayne Gretzky passed to Mario Lemieux, who scored the Canada Cup winning goal in 1987. This October, there is a dinner in Hamilton, which is a celebration of that game, of that series, of that great Hamilton sports moment. And right now it's a night with Wayne Gretzky, but they say they expect it's going to be a bunch of other players who from that team and the 72 team who will be there as well. Which brings me to my question for you, Rick, as in the couple of minutes we have left. I argue, and I don't think that anyone's going to argue again. I don't think I'll lose this argument. There are three goals that make up the holy trinity of goals in hockey history. There is Paul Henderson in 1972. There is Mario Lemieux from Wayne Gretzky in 1987. There is Sidney Crosby at the Olympics in 2010. Which one of those, or put those three in order of importance for hockey? I thought Doug Gilmore against the Blues in 92-93 would yeah. be enough for sure. Yeah, Nikolai but... Borshevsky against the <laughs> Red Wings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would say, you know, counting down from 3-1, to one, <clears throat> I'd probably go uh, the 87 Canada Cup, uh, Gretzky to Lemieux. Although that, in 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 its entirety, that, uh, that series, that final three games, that whole Canada Cup, I think is probably the best um, set of hockey games we've ever seen and perhaps will ever see. Um, and, and probably the biggest and greatest collections of stars that we'll ever see. But I think that goal among the three is number three. <clears throat> I think a number two is Sidney Crosby, you know, at home, in Vancouver, Olympic Games, uh, overtime, uh, you know, against the Americans, and, you know, the golden boy, uh, you know, Sid the Kid gets the goal. I think I'd put that number two. And, and by far and away, the most important uh, goal in Canadian hockey history is Paul Henderson in 72. Uh, never mind the great comeback on the ice 
Uh, but it was all the other stuff off the ice, you know, West versus, you know, communism and, and, and all that uh, that buildup led up. And, and, you know, the great speech from Bill Esposito and uh, that goal really encapsulated us as, as a nation. And, uh, you know, people obviously, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tremendous goal because he still talked about it so many years after the fact. I actually agree with you. I was ready to fight with you about this, but I actually agree <laughs> with you. The only reason that you put maybe... 87 ahead of 2010 is because as you say it is that series was universally considered the greatest best played highest level yeah. hockey series ever played all three games ended 6-5 and the the play was to to win the best series ever means something but when you go and watch the replays on YouTube or whatever and you can do this of Sidney Crosby scoring and then the, I'm talking about the clips where they show across Canada the celebrations, when you realize the impact that Sidney Crosby's goal had, which was still minuscule, well, not minuscule, but a lot smaller than Paul Henderson's impact. But yeah, you're right. right. I, I completely understand. Here's my one question, though, as we go, because I'm way late. you got 10 seconds. Yeah. Where is the memorial or the whatever, the plaque, the flag, the statue? Where is the thing in Hamilton that honors that 87 goal? That's a great question. I have no idea, and I don't think it exists. It does not exist, which I think is a huge oversight, and I'm hoping before this year, this 30th anniversary of year is out, somebody will do something about that somewhere. Anyway, Rick, thank you very much for the time tonight. Always appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. I know you had a long yeah. day already. <laughs> Rick Zamperin, always great to have him on. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. That is a guy from Hamilton named Christopher Claus. He is, it's kind of a cool name, he's known as Hamilton's Beatles guy. Which, i got to be honest, when I heard that nickname I thought, well, that's, that's not only cool, but it's way better than being Hamilton's Justin Bieber guy. Right? But anyway, tomorrow evening at the Zoetic Theater on Concession Street, he is going to be performing, he is going to be performing, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the album. Why? Well, because tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of the North American release of the Beatles' masterpiece. 50 years ago tomorrow. If you're old enough to have been alive and, I don't know, a teenager or younger than a teenager or older than a teenager and got that album, you'll probably remember that day. June 2, 1967, it was released in North America. Went on to win four Grammys and to be considered one of the best, most groundbreaking albums of all time. In fact, Rolling Stone magazine Several years ago, they did their top 500 albums of all time. It was number one, top ever. And when you realize, when you remember, if you've forgotten, what are the songs that are on this album? 13 songs on Sgt. Pepper's, including Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, With a Little Help from My Friends, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, When I'm 64, Lovely Rita, A Day in the Life, She's Leaving Home. There's a lot of stuff to deal with there, a lot of stuff to work with. Christopher Claus joins me now. Christopher, how are you this evening? I am well. How are you? I listen. I'm excellent. How's the voice? Are you ready? Because this is this is a huge thing tomorrow night. <laughs> well, I think it's it's in good shape. I had a couple of shows this week, and but things are good, and I'm I'm really excited about Friday. I must tell you though, when I heard that you were doing a one man show of Sergeant Pepper, I thought, okay, unless the man is an octopus, and I've seen your picture, you're not. <laughs> I have no idea how one man performs an album that they, I think I read they spent set, they spent 700 hours making with full orchestras and overdubbing and redubbing. How does one person do this? 
true. And you add the two four-track machines that they tried to sync up for the very first time and four in recorded history. And right? four Beatles. And four Beatles, yes. Um, well, it's, uh, it's, I mean, obviously, Sgt. Pepper has been one of my most favorite Beatle records. I have a few, but it has a special place in my heart. And uh, we have done these tribute shows for the Beatles since about 2002. And back in 2007, we actually did Sgt. Pepper with a large group of people, and we took the venue, which was James Street Baptist Church, and we uh, transformed it into the front cover. So when you walked huh. into the sanctuary, you had, you know, the, the you know the bass drum, and you had the flowers, and and sort of a facsimile of some of the uh, the photographs in the back of the famous people. And you know, we did it, and I loved it, and we did all the records from basically, you know, from the first record all the way to Let It Be. And then I said, I'm I'm not going to do any more album tributes with large groups anymore. I just, I, you know, it's, it's just a lot of work. And then 50 years for Sgt. Pepper came up and I thought, you know, I really love this record. And I, I want to personally mark this somehow. And I thought, well, how could I do that? I was like, well, do it on your own. <laughs> so I thought, you know, now obviously uh, it's not a note-for-note recreation. Um, my approach to this has been simply... Um, I, I use a looper in my live solo performances, and if people have seen me around t- town, they know what I do. Um, for this show, I'm going to use two separate looper pedals and be able to sort of add different uh, textures with, you know, thankfully we have some new technologies, some wonderful pedals that can emulate some things. So it's not a note-for-note um, transcription of the record, but what it is is it's, it's performing this album, which amazingly enough when you start from Sgt. Pepper and end on a day in a life, this piece is a, is a really good performance piece. It works well as a live album, uh, which they never did live, which is the, the funny thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm excited that the show itself is going to be my tribute to, you know, the album. Uh, and of course we'll start off with the single that was released prior to the album. We'll do strawberry fields and penny lane first, and then hit the album, you know, right off the bat. So, for me, it's a labor of love, and it's kind of a, uh, it's been a real challenge for me to think outside the box as, okay, I'm one guy, I've got two hands and two feet, how do I recreate this record um, in a way that still respects the record, but also recognizes that it's just one guy? Well, and again, without, <laughs> without going into like too, too much specific detail, when you're sitting there and you start to work on this, how do you decide what to distill down? I mean, I, I, essentially, it's like taking a bucket of water, a bucket of salt water, and you're trying to boil off all the water to leave the salt. I mean, you, how, do you, yeah. how do you choose what to leave in and what to take out? Yeah, I think when you look at the songs themselves, certain songs just really make it easy for you. Uh, one, in case, is, uh, in fact, is She's Leaving Home. Um, you know, with She's Leaving Home, I've decided to go with a very simple approach to it and approach it very differently. So I've taken the the idea of the, the harp piece, as we will, you know, the opening harp piece, and made it into an arpeggiated guitar thing. So I've really tried to simplify that. So I think when you listen to the record, and I because I know it so well now, you know, I've lived with it for so many years, um, There, I try to strip the song down to the melody and to basically the you know, the basic harmonic structure and go, okay, from there, where shall I go with this? Um, and that's, and that's sort of, that was how I started the process of going through and going, okay, so if I loop this section for this long doing this, then I need to add this and how will I do that? So, um, so it's interest. it's been a really interesting process in terms of starting with the basic nucleus of each song 
and then trying to add the elements that were in the original record somehow and, and make you feel like you're hearing those songs. We have had on this show the folks from the Zoetic Theater, and people may remember, if they're regular listeners, we were, I think we had them on, it was either The Wizard of Oz or Grease, there was some sing-along movie they did, they show the movie and the words are up there, all the audience shows up in character, and they sing along. That is kind of, in this city, what the Zoetic is known for, is audience participation. Would it be a fair assumption then that even when it's not a movie but a live performance, the same thing will be happening if you show up? You'd better be prepared to be singing along. <laughs> well, I, I'm tr- going to try to do a balance because if anyone has seen me live, they do know that I love getting audiences to sing. And my day job is that I'm a worship leader. So, I mean, I, I get people to sing on Sunday. So that's kind of, you know, that's one of my giftings. So my hope is that I'm not, I'm, there's no way to stop people from singing, period, and never should they. Um, but I really, there are parts in the album that the words are going to appear on the screen and people will be able to sing along to the songs that I think they know fairly well. Um, I suspect Within You Without You may not be a real crowd pleaser in terms of, you know, sing along. <laughs> you know, for me it is, but, you know, for the average person, they probably, you know, uh, wouldn't take to it maybe like they would with a little help from my friends. Right, right. So my hope is really to get the, the crowd involved as well and just to, have a lot of fun. What What is, out of curiosity, because this, as you say, you've been with this album for a long time, as everyone has. It's 50 years, as I say, tomorrow. What's your favorite song on it? A, to listen to, and B, to play, because I'm guessing they may not be necessarily the same thing. That's very true. Um, you know, this, this record is so complex, and it's funny, if you asked me, uh, my favorite song is the one that didn't appear on the record, <laughs> uh, which would be Strawberry Fields. And so I would say, if I included Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, I would probably say um, that Strawberry Fields would be my favorite song from the record, if I could say that. Um, But in terms of performance, I really do love playing A Day in the Life. Because again, it's it's another one of those challenges in terms of how you create the space in the orchestral buildup, and I, you know, I have a way that I do that. So, but of course, not giving things away. Um, you know, <laughs> there, uh, you know, I think there'll be a lot of chance to um, experience that power in that middle section. So, um, and I have to say too, I I do love playing uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. That's a fun one to play. I'm see. I'm concerned that there might be something deeply wrong with me because at this point, I think my favorite song on the album is "Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite," <laughs> and and I I'm, I you know every, all these other great hits and the one I like the best right now anyway because it changes over time yeah. is yeah. one that yeah. most people could not hum if you gave them an hour and a half to figure it out. They just it doesn't come oh. f- quickly to mind. Oh, it's a great melody. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> again, you're talking to somebody who knows it really Sure, well. of course. Um, There's I a lot of people I, listening right now going, I have no idea what you guys are talking about with that song. Yeah. Will, maybe well, you could find Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite so we can tell people in a second here what we're talking about. Go ahead, though. <laughs> exactly. Um, it was one of those songs that um, John wanted to recreate this feeling of a circus fairground. Mm-hmm. And uh, he told George Martin he wanted to smell the sawdust on the floor. Um, so they took this very beautiful song that was kind of in 2-4 um, and created what really does sound like a circus song. And then the middle section goes to this waltz. And the whole song is based on a poster that he found uh, when he was antique shopping. And literally, if you look at the poster, which is included in this new deluxe set they've released, um, it all the words are essentially on the poster. Like Lennon, all he did was basically rearrange the poster and make it into a song. 
you know, so, and it, it really, when you hit the three, four time, I just love that rush of sound and all the different loops that they created. And these are in the days before loops, but they had, you know, different uh, tapes of steam engines and different things that they threw up in the air and cut up and re-spliced together. And um, what I love about that song is just the, the color, the musical color that, you know, they put together to create this track. It's it's just so exciting. It's here's, a great here's, way to end side one. We've got it here. Now, here's the reason I wanted to play it, because there are so many songs people on this that know from this album, and yet when it comes to this one, I'm guessing a lot of people, as I said, don't know this one necessarily by name. We'll hit, the, hit it here. I think people recognize it, though, when they hear the music. Yes. Yeah. I believe they would. And if they saw the love show, about the love uh, show that was See, everyone knows that song. We just wanted a taste of it, but that's that's the one we're talking about. I love that song. I don't know why. Um, why though? Why do you think this album is so special? What is it about it? Because it still holds up too, and that's what makes this yeah. anniversary unique. That's why you're playing this. Yeah. Why does this album hold up 50 years later? Because very few really do. Yeah, yeah, because they really do sound dated or, you know, something comes off and it, yeah. For me, there's a couple of reasons. One, I think it was the boldness that the Beatles had in putting these songs together. I mean, when you listen to every track, they're really stylistically so different. There's not a single song here that you think, oh, that's, you know, that's that certain style and, and, and you know, the whole album's going to sound like that style. And so it was one of those first records that created different sonic textures for every song in different styles. Um, for me, the second thing is to, in their boldness in being, we want to make the best record ever. Um, there's this fearless attitude that they took in creating the album. And, you know, some would argue that maybe the songs are not the best written songs that the Beatles ever did. You know, that there were certain other periods of, you know, whether they say Rubber Solar Revolver, um, you know, were maybe better songs. When you put all of these songs together um, as a unit, they really function well. And it was recorded so, so well. You have to remember, it was only four track back then. And for a day in the life, they had to actually sync up two different four track machines before Simpty Codes, before any of that. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't to create this incredible montage of sound. And for me, it's the most colorful Beatles record. Um, and thanks to Jeff Emmerich, the engineer, he created such amazing new sounds. You know, they started to close mic instruments and things that they really hadn't done before. And to me, sonically, it just, it, when I think of Revolver, I think of it as kind of a mess, like a sort of a, you know, a very sort of muddy mess. And I, and you go to the next album, Sgt. Pepper, and it's like a, it's like the Wizard of Oz when you go from black or huh. Technicolor, you know, black and white to Technicolor, right? It's just a total change. Well, so. the other thing they did that uh, I thought was, I don't think it was the intention, but I think it was genius, was wh- you could spend the entire time the album is playing looking at the cover, trying to figure out what the heck they're talking about with those images on the cover and trying to resolve what's going through their brains and still never figure it out. It's kind of like listening to American Pie and trying to yeah. interpret the lyrics. Yeah, everything on that record was you know, revolutionary from the cover artwork itself um, to the fact that they actually put lyrics on the back cover for the first time on any album, you know, to the quality of the recording, uh, to putting what's called a run out groove in the very end of side two. So in the old days, you know, people had turntables in the old days, if you let the record play 
and it didn't have a, an automatic return, it would get stuck in that final groove. Well, they put sounds at the end of that groove so that if you if you fell asleep listening to the record, these sounds went on for hours unless you lifted the needle off of the record, you know? And it's like, again, and, and who puts a dog whistle, a 15 kilohertz, you know, signal on the end of an album? The Beatles do because, you know, Paul McCartney wanted his dog's ears to prick up, you know? Like it was just, you know, the playfulness, the joy, the, the color, the... The, the innovative approach that they took to making this record, that's for me why it has lasted 50 years and why it's, it was the first real art record in my estimation. And, where, you, know, you know, they may, I'm not going to cast any aspersions, but there may have been a few chemical enhancements along the way to give them some <laughs> ideas, you know, may, maybe, I don't know. I've, I've yeah. heard stories. Yeah, there, there might have been. Correct, yes. But again, most of it didn't happen in the studio because when they right. know, were inspired, they didn't play very well. <laughs> so It is, um, again, you are playing tomorrow night uh, at the Zoetic Theater, which is up on Concession, just kind of near the hospital, kind of near Jurvinsky Hospital there. Uh, do you yeah. know if there's tickets still available? As far as I know, there are a few tickets still available, so which is great. And I've been told that there are some good seats left, which is which is wonderful. So we'd love people to come. Well, show um, up wearing your John, your uh, Sergeant Pepper album jacket, whatever the you know whichever color of silk jacket you want to wear, and uh, be prepared to sing along, right? Exactly. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a, an intermission after we've done Sergeant Pepper, and then I'm coming back to do uh, a show. And I've on my Facebook page, uh, I've asked for people to send in their song requests. So we're starting to get some of those. So the second set list, get it keeping in, 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 uh, in keeping with the zoetic and their sort of aesthetic, is we're getting all the requests of the crowd, you know, as the second set. All Beatles? No, everything. I'll be playing some of my own material as well. We had a couple. We had a request for a Who song, and we've had some other things as well. So it's, uh, yeah. So we're. I'm looking. I'm looking. Really looking forward to tomorrow night. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's a great theater, and and it's got a great vibe and. And uh, I think the the room really fits Sergeant Pepper, that sort of Victorian type, you know, kind um, of you know kind of show. Well, it is uh, if you're looking for something to do tomorrow night, and you are in the Beatles mood to celebrate fiftieth fifty years of Sergeant Pepper's the Zoetic Theater again. You can find their website Z O E T I C. It's up on Concession Street. Uh, this may be of interest to you to go and hear Christopher play. If I was not here, Christopher, I would be there. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you so much, Scott. Looking forward to hearing from you soon. That is, uh, Christopher also has a lot of stuff online. You can go and get a, a bit of a flavor of what he does when he's playing his Beatles stuff. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.